Father God, to sing songs in which we say, I put my trust in you alone and I shall not be shaken. Father God, your word is living and active. Your gospel truth is ready to be applied and to bring healing to all wounds of all sizes. Father, right now we come to the medicine chest and we ask as we groan and hurt, Father, as our hearts hurt, as our stomachs are sick, as our minds are weary, as we come to you with our sleeplessness, as we come to you with our worry and our anxiety and our depression and our fear, Father, will you give us the medicine that we need? God, we thank you that even death itself is not an illness that is too strong for the great medicine of the resurrection that you have given us. And we long for the day, Lord, when you will wrap up all illness, emotional, physical, and you will toss it as far from us as the east is from the west, God, and we will be whole and happy and joyful in your kingdom, no longer to be fearful, no longer to have need to even watch the news, Father. No longer to have sleepless nights, but to rest in the presence of our King. We thank you, God, that on this stage before us today, we are shown, Lord, a glimpse of the joy that is to be restored to us in Jesus at his return. Thank you for making weeping mothers sing. Thank you for giving us hope in sickness. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen. Early in my seminary days, I was told the story of an old and respected professor who was asked what his greatest regret was in life. This man had written books and articles on scripture. He, uh, in, by, in many aspects, was the authority in his particular field. He had taught various classes in biblical studies. His CV, his curriculum vitae, was, was long and took multiple pages and People just came to this guy with, with reverence and respect, knowing that this man had studied scripture in multiple different languages, Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, and could read it in its original languages and had basked in the beauty of the language of scripture. And someone wanted to know what his greatest regret was. And after he heard that question, he gave a brief pause and became real thoughtful and self-reflective. And then he responded, I wish I would have read the Bible more. The story has stuck with me ever since. How is it that someone who accumulated a lifetime of thousands of hours of Bible study could wish that they spent more time studying the word of God? At the time I felt in, in my seminary days, I'm, I'm just struggling to read my books. I'm struggling to make ends meet. I'm struggling to take care of a family and just to squeeze in an hour. That would be just, that would be enough to checkmark my daily devotion for the day, just to, just to get in an hour, and that would be enough. But after a few years of reading and studying and searching and plotting and teaching and writing of my own, I'm starting to see the old professor's point. The old professor had come to see Bible reading for what it really is. Reading scripture for many of us is a chore, we have to use words like discipline because it's not something that we do naturally or that we naturally want to do. And sometimes it feels like we have to do this chore in order to become somehow better people. 
And while it's true that Bible reading does shape us and it molds us into who we need to be, it's much more than that. When we come to reading scripture, as we're going to see today, reading scripture is an opportunity to relish in the beautiful gold and silver, the rubies and sapphire of the redemptive story. To bask into the treasures of God, to to dip our hands into the treasure box, so to speak. Just to pull it out and look. And so, and so when we're thinking about reading scripture, you're not going to get this beat down today of why you have to read the Bible and why you must wake up every morning and read the Bible. Instead, my hope is, is that you'll be inspired to read the Bible because you want to. Because in this box is gold and silvers and diamond and all these things that are beautiful to look at. And by looking, you're changed and you're transformed. By coming to scripture, we, we gaze upon the beauty of God. I've met a lot of older Christians and, and people who have, who have basked in the treasure of scripture. One of the things I found is one hour is simply not enough for them. Getting up at 5 a.m. is just simply too late to get as much time as they want. So they get up at 4. They get up earlier and earlier. They can't sleep at night but they don't turn on the television. They open up the scriptures and they try to find rest and comfort when they can't sleep from the word of God. They want two hours, three hours, four hours. Just give it to me when I can take it. The TV shows, they're great. They're entertaining. They're fun to watch. The news is interesting, but give them a cool afternoon on the front porch with a cup of coffee and an open Bible. And that is paradise. Just to bask into the treasure of God on a porch swing. It's the silent, still wind blowing as you're reading about these ancient treasures that your God has planted into the book. Now, as will be seen in this last parable of Matthew 13, the truths of Christ and his kingdom are pure treasures, both new and old, that are intended to be cherished and adored. For generations, Christians have been known as people of the book. That was, that was originally used of us by Muslims who were trying to describe what kinds of people we were. We were people of the book. And as people of the book, we love the book. We hold the book. We read the book. We come to the book. Because it is in the book that we see and treasure our Savior. As was seen in the last sermon, the parabolic discourse of Matthew 13 forms a chiasm that teaches the central truth that all must come to Jesus in order to know and have the kingdom. You cannot know and have the kingdom unless you come to Jesus, which means that we must be humble in our coming to him. We now come to the final parable, the parable of the master of the house. And it's going to end this section just the way it began. The first parable uh, talked about the lack of understanding from those who heard Jesus and contrasted it with the understanding that the disciples have. Well, now we come back to this idea of understanding. And so if we just put this picture of the parables together, Matthew's intentionally elevating two truths. Number one, if you want the truth of the kingdom, if you want to know what the kingdom is like, if you want to bask in the treasure of the kingdom, you've got to come to the king. You cannot have the kingdom. You cannot know the kingdom without the king who knows his own kingdom. We must all humble and come to him. And then the second truth is this. That if we are disciples, that means we are seeking to understand and apply this teaching. We don't just want kingdom truth. We want to see kingdom truth bear fruit 
in our lives. We don't just read scripture. We don't just go to seminary classes. We don't just go to GDI courses. We don't just go to Bible studies so that we can show off our trinkets of knowledge. No, we come to the Bible because we want to see kingdom truth being implanted in our lives and bearing fruit in active ways. That's why we read scripture. And, and if we are to be disciples, we're constantly doing those two things, coming to Jesus, understanding and applying and bearing fruit. Now, I think that's the goal of discipleship. If you want to know what God wants of you as a person, it's that you will be in this perpetual humbling to where you are coming more and more under the reign of your king. A perpetual humbling so that more and more of the kingdom truths are being displayed in your life. So that you're loving people in ways that you haven't loved them before. So that you're trusting God in ways that you haven't trusted him before. So that you're battling your fears, your anxieties, your hatreds, your anger in ways that haven't been done before. To see the kingdom beginning to expand and grow and to take over those unplowed parts of your life and beginning to bear fruit. So Jesus is coming to the end of his parables and he asks his disciples a very simple question. Have you understood these things? I, I don't know how much time went by. Maybe they had a little huddle time and said, Peter, did you get it? We know you're a bit slow, Peter. Did you, <laughs> did you catch it all? I, and I don't know how, how much time they took, but they came back and they basically said, yes, we got it. Now they might've been speaking over confidently, but that's up for debate. But Jesus doesn't, really correct them. He doesn't challenge them. He doesn't doubt their understanding, which means that at least in part, they probably had some kind of partial understanding of everything Jesus had said. They at least had a, a conceptual grasp and they were beginning to see fruit of it in their own lives. I do think it's worth pointing out though, that what Jesus means by understood does not mean this perfect grasp of all of his kingdom truths. When he said, have you understood these things? He's not asking, do you see perfectly clear? Do you understand it all? Do you, are you able to contain all of these things that I've just showed you perfectly without any kind of imperfection? He doesn't mean that. That's not what he's saying when he says, have you understood these things? And we know that because just a couple of chapters later in Matthew 16, 9, after they said, yes, we have understood these things, Jesus rebukes his anxious disciples and says, do you not yet understand? So it's not a perfect understanding, whichever way we cut it. Jesus wants to see if the kingdom truths are being embedded, even if imperfectly, in their lives. Now, I, I preach that point to give us a little bit of hope because we're disciples too. We understand well enough that Jesus is king. We get that. We see that. We understand that he's the central hope of redemption, don't we? I don't think anyone would argue against that and claim to be a believer. And we know that it's only through his death and his resurrection that sinners are saved and reconciled to God. And we can even, and in that case, we know more than the disciples of Matthew 13, but we can even say that we know how things are going to end with the king's return. However, even with all that understanding, there are times we fail to grasp the truths of God. We fail to live in what we know. Sometimes we fail to apply these truths. Jesus is king, but yet we still lose sleep over whatever's going to happen next. Jesus is king and he's sovereign. We know how it's going to end. It's going to end with him on the throne, but yet we want to retain our own kingship in different ways. 
We're just like the disciples in that. We understand. And yet, just like the disciples in Matthew 16, there's times that, yes, we know that Jesus has worked mightily in the past. We know that we uh, uh, can trust him. We know that he always keeps his promises. We've seen him work. We've seen him provide. He's given grace. He's given mercy. And yet, we still doubt the full extent of his power and authority for today and tomorrow. My friends, discipleship is very much a growing and developing understanding of Christ. My friends, the wisest professors I've had in, in seminary are the ones that are like playful kids thinking they have read scripture for the first time every day. I used to have an old professor just walk up to me in class and he'd say, hey, I didn't know if you knew this, but this is amazing. I read this amazing thing today. Jesus loves you. Okay, talk. That was like, that was kindergarten, Sunday school class. Yeah, I just thought you needed to hear it again because you probably didn't grasp it like you should. This is profound insight. Don Whitney, one of the spiritual disciplines um, professor, uh, used to talk about the problem to meditate on scripture and how uh, we, we, re, we, we say things like John 3, 16, right? right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. We can all spout that out, right? Because that goes back to Awana and, and you still remember who signed off for that ver verse. But he said, just slow down for a little bit. Focus on each word. For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. For God so love the world. And he just emphasized word after word. He went back and he and it just changed the meaning for me. Just to, opened up a whole new learning process for me. When he got, by the time he got to love, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It's just, my eyes are weepy over this John 3, 16 verse that I've memorized since a kid and just befuddled my mind. Why? And he just kept going word after word after word, emphasizing, my friends, if we can't be awestruck by things like John 3.16, even as 80-year-olds, 90-year-olds, 100-year-olds, we've not quite grasped what it means to be a disciple. No one in becoming a disciple comes to complete and full understanding. It is an active and, and passionate engagement and growth. It's to see ourselves grow. Not to see ourselves as grown, but to see ourselves as growing. It's two different realities there. To see ourselves as grown means that it's perfect, it's complete, we're done. Nothing new need be added. And yet, the walk of disciples is a long walk towards the cross and resurrection, and a long walk to the new Jerusalem when we get to walk hand in hand with Jesus. And even there, we will still be learning. Even there, we will still be developing. And my question to you is, are you, do you see yourself as grown? Do you see yourself as growing? Or do you see yourself as stagnant? My friends, nowhere in scripture will you ever see a model of discipleship for stunted believers. There's no idea in discipleship in which a person just simply grows stagnant, lives on old wine from years past. Now, yes, there's pictures of disciples who have moments of weakness, failures, and even sin. You can see that in 
Peter in uh, Galatians chapter 2 when he kind of falls back into these old ways. So there's definitely moments we dip into it, but there's no form of discipleship in scripture in which a person just simply stops growing. This is not there. God's desire is for people to go further up and further in. Another way to say this or to understand this is by looking back at the parable of the sower. Anyone who hears and understands inevitably bears fruit. It doesn't mean that they all bear the same. I mean, you see your 30 fold, your 60 fold and a hundred fold, but here's the point. If they hear and truly understand, they all bear fruit in some way. They all bear fruit, but you don't see any kind of thing of fruitless discipleship. My friends, to be disciples, we must bear fruit. We must do so by understanding. We must do so by allowing God to ripen us in his word, to ripen us in the knowledge of Christ. In this passage, the disciples display a budding knowledge of Christ. They know some of these parable truths. They know who Jesus is, at least in part. They understand some of what he's doing. But they're engaged in that long walk that's going to culminate on Golgotha and then culminate in an empty tomb. And though they know in part now, they're going to understand better after that tomb is open. My friends, in the same way, we're those who have the mysteries of the kingdom. We know what all history is waited for. We know who's the king of it all. We understand what God is doing in the world through Jesus Christ. And yet, we still see in a mirror dimly lit. And it's not until Christ returns that what we see now in part, we will then see face to face. My friends, when I I thought about teaching, preaching a sermon on Bible reading, I was like, what in the world am I going to say? about Bible reading, because it's one of those disciplines today that we just kind of groan at. Yes, we know we should do it more. My friends, there's no guilt tactic here. It's just simply saying, look at all this beauty that's unfolding before your eyes. Look at all this beauty, this buried treasure that's hidden deep into ancient texts that is beginning to blossom and fold out, and you see it in your own life. That's that a beautiful thing. When, when you see Scripture coming alive in your own life, when you suddenly feel like you want to die for your wife because Christ loved his church and he died for his church, you want to love your bride like the Christ, and suddenly you feel that inside of you to where you want nothing more than to lay down your life. This is a beautiful truth that's coming out to bask in the beauty of God's word and I've done lots of discipleship and counseling and I often hear people lament how little they know or how much they feel behind and I, I understand some of this may be because we have not spent enough committed time in the word. And I definitely think we need to spend more disciplined time in the word. However, it may also simply be because we need to, the grace and the time to ripen. But that won't happen outside of the word of God. Even the sweetest apples need the grace, the rain, and the sun from God's word to ripen. 
My friends, it will be a painful reality. The more you come into God's word, the more you'll be challenged, you'll be chipped. It is a reality that the more you come and you lay your life out on this book, the more that your life is gonna be broken and hurt and things are gonna be broken away and you're gonna see things fall off. Idolatries fall behind, old angers and hostilities falling away because that's what this book does. I've often seen... Um, Big sculptures, like, uh, like you think of David, right? Michelangelo's David. And you just look at how uh, smooth the surfaces on David. How can a man get a rock to bend like that? How can a man, I mean, you just look at this thing, it's just one, coming from one marble slab, and you, 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 if you touch a marble slab, it's, it's immovable, it's hard, and you start to break it with a chisel, and it makes really sharp cuts, and it cracks, and, it's, and, and Michelangelo's working with a hammer and a chisel, and he's breaking the stone, and it's bending to his will. It's not these, you see Michelangelo's smooth, it's not like got all these little chisel marks and lines cut deep in it. It's smooth and it's beautiful. My friends, in the word of God, God takes up his hammer and chisel and he cracks your stony heart and bends stone to his will. It's painful. It's loud. It's noisy. It's obnoxious. And yet God uses it at the right time, at the right moment to chip Break and crack hammer after hammer after hammer. And that's what the word of God does for us. But the beauty of it in the end is that we learn to image our beautiful Savior. So my friends, just that very question, have you understood these things? Are you engaged in this further up, further in discipleship? Are you engaged in this chipping, in this cracking, in this bending of stone? Are you engaged in allowing the artist to shape your life into something beautiful? Or do you resist the word because you're afraid of being broken? You may not be where you need to be. You may not be the disciple that you have been called to be right now. But in this walk of understanding, you're continuing to grow. You're continuing to, to blossom forth in the truths of the word of God. And that's okay. Nobody should shame you for doing that. The disciples of Jesus are showing us that sometimes in the school of Christ, oftentimes, maybe even always, understanding never comes as a finished product. It's something that we continue to live in and grow in day by day. Now, after the disciples had affirmed that they understood these things, Jesus continues from there. Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is old. Now, on its own, just reading this parable is very hard to understand what he's trying to talk about here. It's like, what does he mean? Scribe of the kingdom who's a master of the house bringing out what is new and what is old. But if you begin to expand out to the greater context of Matthew's gospel, it becomes a little clearer. Before we dive in straight to the parable, though, I think it's helpful to understand what a scribe is. We're not just talking about a writer of scripture here. In the ancient world, scribes were a, re a respected class of people. Oftentimes in the ancient world, scribes were authorized to shape and mold and organize a, a community underneath the reign of a king. That's 
They were royal scribes in that sense. They took the policies of the king. They taught them to people. They organized the community around these uh, different commands. And they shaped the community in that way. They functioned as an intermediary, as one scholar puts it, an intermediary between the king and the people. Now, in the Old Testament, so that's just scribes in general, but in the Old Testament specifically, we see scribes fulfilling three functions. They were students of the Torah, they were models of the Torah, and they were teachers of the Torah. We see that in Ezra chapter 7, verse 10, in which Ezra the scribe set his heart to study the law of God, to do it, and to teach his statutes and his rules in Israel. So we see that student, model, teacher. And then his teaching was commissioned to shape Israel underneath the reign of God's law, underneath the reign of Yahweh's reign. It's probable Jesus was using that same understanding of scribe when he mentioned it here. There's just one key difference. The scribes in the Old Testament were, were, were studied under the law of God. They understood how the Torah worked. These scribes are those discipled in the kingdom of heaven. It's a different kind of school. It's a different kind of discipleship. These scribes are those who had been taught the kingdom truths by the king himself. And as is seen in the rest of the New Testament, they became lifelong students. I mean, it's just fascinating to read the gospels and think about Peter and then to read Acts and to see Peter's progression and growth. And then to read Galatians chapter two and then to read the letter of first Peter. And you're seeing this man who's in active growth. This man who's in this active relationship with the Lord. He's a student. I can only imagine what it must have been like to pick up the Old Testament scriptures again in Hebrew and read them after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I mean, these are people who had walked with Jesus on the road to Emmaus and him saying all these things point to me. Can you imagine for the first time ever to open up to Genesis 3.15 and to realize that that was speaking about Jesus. Can you imagine for the first time ever to read Exodus and to realize that this Exodus you had known and celebrated your entire Jewish life has now been fulfilled in an even greater extent than is happening all over the world. Can you imagine reading Leviticus and hearing about these lepers that were not allowed into the community because they were so dirty and unclean and they weren't allowed to come in and touch anything because whatever they touched became unclean. And yet you have a living memory of Jesus extending his hand and making the unclean clean. Bible reading was not boring to these students of scripture. It was something that they saw their savior in the pages etched throughout and so they became writers of scripture. You hear Peter writing scripture. Peter helped also pen Mark. Um, he, he worked through Mark to help pen it. Uh, you've got John writing scripture, Matthew writing scripture. And what they're doing is they're, they're writing it out and they're laying out before you their discoveries from their own understanding of the Old Testament in light of Jesus's life so that then you can shape your life around the reality that Jesus is king. It's an amazing art, literary art that they have done here. Now, through the New Testament writers, these authors are serving as scribes of the king, like those intermediaries that we talked about. They're shaping a community under the rule of the king. 
They're shaping a group of people to live under the reign of Jesus. My friends, this is why we hold to sola scriptura, scripture alone, is only through the written word of God that we can joyfully live under Jesus's authority. My friends, I know it's 2020. There's lots of things to preach on. There's lots of things to say behind this pulpit. Nothing will be as effective as the word of God because nothing has as much authority. You will not be formed into God's people by me preaching to you my own commentary. You will only be formed into the people of God by being shaped and molded by the word of God. My friends, the Bible is not tame, and it doesn't tame itself to your will, to your desires, to your thoughts, to your opinion. No, it tames you. It tames you. It's that powerful. It may look like a book, but the moment you open it, you see how powerful it actually is. Day by day, moment by moment, hour after hour, chipping after chipping, formation after formation, and suddenly your life looks completely different because this is how God works in the foolishness of a book to shape the lives of his people. There is nothing that can be more beneficial to preach from than the word of God. Movies don't do it. The news doesn't do it. Political commentaries don't do it. Medical reports don't do it. Only the word of God can form you into the people that God wants you to be. And that's why we're sola scriptura. And that's why we don't let the circumstances of the world mandate what's preached behind the pulpit. We will preach whatever verse that we're in that Sunday, and it will apply. Now, there might be special occasions to break and have some thoughts and to think, but we come verse by verse by verse because I cannot plan your health. Jesus is the physician. Jesus is the one who knows what you're going to need 20 years from now on some Sunday far away. We come to the book we come because the scriptures tell us everything we need to live a God-honoring life under the king. I mean, just think of it. How does the king want his people to enjoy marriage in the kingdom? Well, for that, we go to Ephesians 5, right? Husbands, lay down your, your lives for your wife. like Christ Love your wives like Christ loved the church. Well, how did Christ love the church? He gave up his life. He died for it. That's how husbands need to love their wives. Husbands, if you're being so selfish that you can't sacrificially love your wife, I'm sorry, you're missing the mark. Go to Ephesians 5 and learn how to do it. Wives, submit to your husbands. It's a hard teaching these days. But your relationship to your husband should match the relationship of the church to Christ. The church loves Jesus. The church trusts Jesus. The church follows Jesus. Do the same in your relationships. That's what God has called you to do. How do we treat one another? Now, for that, you have to go to the whole Bible. And I tried to summarize 20 different points on the back of your notes for all these different things, but... Let's just look at some of the different texts. We might go to Galatians 5.15, for example, where Paul warns Christians against biting and devouring one another. These little nannying moments that we get, you know, where we're kind of like goats more than sheep. Just bite and nip one another. Or we could go to uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 10, where it says that we are to outdo one another in showing honor. You want to be competitive in church? Great. This is a great way to be competitive. Out-honor the person next to you. 
What about Galatians 6 2, where we are commanded to fulfill the law of Christ by bearing one another's burdens? How many burdens have we carried this week for each other? Have we actively reached out and made the initiation and called someone just to see how we can help carry a burden? How can I pray for you? I know things must be tough right now. We'd ask many other questions. For example, how does the king want his people to deal with disagreements and potential conflict? Yes, conflict is found in scripture and you see it in 2 Timothy 2.25. Or does he want his, how does he want his people to treat an unfair and unkind boss? Maybe you've got a job that you hate right now. Well, go to Luke 6.28 and find out what it says. What goals should we have in our social interactions? How should we be living in light of this day and age? What should we be doing? Well, Micah 6.8. Love justice, be kind. Walk humbly before your God. Love, justice, humility. It's there in Scripture. The point is, is that Scripture alone is sufficient to teach, reprove, correct, and train us in righteousness so that we may be equipped, uh, be complete and equipped for every good work. Now that word, every good work, is all-encompassing, meaning that whatever God wants us to do, we can learn how to do it from the book, from Scripture's principles. That is what God has called us to do. And so it's in this little text where Jesus is talking about scribes of the kingdom and them coming and and writing these kingdom truths down for us that we see God's intention for them and for us. He desires for us to come to the book. He desires for us to come to the word. He desires for us to take our cues from the word of God. It's stable. Nothing else is. It's stable, and nobody else's word, nobody else's word lasts nearly as long as the word of God has and will. So as much as we're going to all these other sources to figure out how to live and what to do, we're called to come back to the book. I'll use an analogy. Uh, this week, I was worried about some people in our church, including myself, having COVID. I was more concerned about how someone might get treated in their process of getting tested than I was about the actual sickness itself. I had an anxiety whether I'd be scrutinized, whether I handled it right. And there's lots of people that feel that way rather than being concerned about the sickness itself. My friend, scripture calls us to bear one another's burdens Scripture calls us to love one another, to cover up another. Have we created such a system that people are so frightened about whether they get it exactly right according to our book? Or are we applying the book in the way we love others? I mean, people should be free to feel cared for and loved. They should feel the kindness of God pouring out, regardless of what your personal opinions of how they should handle it are. I can't tell you how many apologies I get from people who test positive from co- for COVID or think they might have COVID. And, uh, Pastor, I'm sorry. I tried my best not to have contact with anyone. And I'm so sorry. I tried to find out. I just, I don't know. And I, I and it was anxiety about how they handled the thing instead of feeling, Pastor, I trust our church to care for me in the midst of the sickness. My friends, that you might be done to death of hearing COVID examples, but that is the time that we live in. And this is the time that we apply God's word People should feel feel loved and cared for, prayed for, 
nursed by the church. Now, on a um, positive note, <laughs> on a positive note, the Smiths have thanked the church for the way that they have gotten caring text messages and all of that. At the same time, we've got to continue to ask the question, how is it that we're living out God's word? How is it that we're living out and applying the word together? Are we promoting our own way? Are we promoting our own thoughts? Are we promoting what we think is right? Or are we actually the ones living? Here's the thing. If, if, if we get to heaven, I just want to, want to cast the future. If we get to heaven, we had all the right stances, right? We had all the right positions. We had all the right procedures. We did all the right things. And yet we didn't have love or humility. My friends, we're on the hot block, not because of our procedures, not because of our policies, but because of our lack of love and humility. That's what's ironic about the whole thing. People take their positions and they think that they're right before God because of the position. And yet the heart's arrogant and unloving. Scripture calls us to break that down. Scripture calls us to love, to outdo one another in honor, which means if you're on this side of the mask issue or on this side of the political debate, then you need to outdo this side in showing honor and love. It is active applying it to Scripture. If you're on this side, you should be bearing the burdens of the people on this side. That's how it's done. That is what Christ came to do. Christ was on this side and he came down onto this side to die this side's death and then went back up so he could bring this side to him with heaven. So we are constantly crossing this side and that side so that we can show love and grace. And that's what scripture calls us to do. And that's what it means to be a part of the discipled scribes. We're coming to these scribes' writings. We're coming to the word of God and we're submitting ourselves under the reign of a king under the reign of a king. He, these scribes are writing as royal scribes for the reign of King Jesus, who tells us how we should live our lives. Now he goes on to compare these scribes discipled, that are discipled for the kingdom of heaven with a master of a house who brings out his treasure, out of his treasure, what is new and what is old. Now in the parabolic comparison, the scribe goes into the treasury. He brings out old treasures. He brings out new treasures. Well, what are these treasures? The key words new and old give us a hint because here old probably refers to if Matthew's using old consistently, probably refers to the old covenant. New probably refers to the new revelation that's brought in Jesus. So they have all the old promises of God and they have this new Messiah that has come onto the scene. They have this new savior that has donned the horizon of their world. They have Isaiah's promises. They have Isaiah's prophecies of a Isianic servant. They have Abrahamic sonship. They have Davidic kingship and so on. And the list goes on and on of all these beautiful things that they see. And yet now throughout Matthew's gospel, we see these things cast into a new light for Matthew. The old Testament promises are fulfilled in Jesus life, death and resurrection. They point forward to what's to come in Jesus Jesus fulfills what was spoken of old. So the old pointing forward to Jesus, Jesus fulfilling what was old. Augustine put it best, I think. He said the new, that is the New Testament, is in the old contained, the old is in the new retained. The new is in the old concealed, the old is in the new revealed. The new is in the old enfolded, and the old is in the new unfolded. 
How beautiful it is that scripture works that way. You can think of the Old Testament as a seed that's planted into the ground of redemption and then it grows and it fully blossoms into a fully grown beautiful flower in Jesus. You see that over and over throughout the Old Testament. Just read your Old Testament sometime and and just wonder, okay, why is that here? Why was that put here? If not just to put a seed that then organically grows and develops until it reaches its telos in Jesus Christ. It's through this organic growth that the Old Testament seeds become New Testament flowers. Or to say it by way of another analogy, Old Testament treasures are given new light and become New Testament treasures. Let's just bask in one example of this. Okay, I, I just want you to know my, um, my scholarly field is biblical theology, which means that my job is to point out the organic growth that's in Scripture. I do that all day in my historical books class at SBIC, and I love it. Just looking at Samuel, for example. example, What kinds of seeds do we see planted in Samuel, and how do we see it organically grow into its full potential in Jesus Christ? So let's just, let's just do that with Genesis 3.15. After Adam and Eve fall to the serpent's temptation, you guys know this promise, right? The, God promises to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, now the fact is, is that, this, that God has in mind a singular person. You shall bruise his head. That's singular in the Hebrew. And he shall bruise your head. That's singular in the Hebrew. So we're talking about this climactic showdown between this offspring of the woman, a singular person and the serpent. One of them is going to, well, both of them are probably going to die, but one of them is going to win. One gets bitten by the in the hill, which is a fatal bite in old, old Testament scripture. When you're bitten by this kind of serpent, this venomous serpent, But in being bitten in the hill, he's going to stomp on the head. He's going to crush this serpent. Well, that points forward to Genesis 22. And as we're sailing along in Genesis, we come from Genesis 3.15 about the serpent crushing offspring to Genesis 22.18, where God tells Abraham, in your offspring, could be singular or plural, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Okay, that keyword offspring again. So the seed begins to bud. Serpent crusher. Blessing restore. Well, it keeps going as it sets its trajectory to First Chronicles chapter 17, in which God tells David, when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring, key word, key seed, after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom, and he shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. So here we have this just little bit of a, a bloom happening right here, right? It's not quite fully developed. We've got, we've got it as a seed. Your offspring will crush the head of the serpent. It unfolds just a little bit. Your offspring will restore blessing to the nations, unfolds just a little bit more. He'll be a king who will reign forever on David's throne. Now we come to Matthew 1.1. The gospel, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David son of Abraham. If you want to see the old seed become a full flower, you go to Matthew's gospel because he shows how this old treasure of an offspring comes to new Testament light in Jesus. These old things are brought out of the treasury and shown new in Jesus. Jesus. 
Again, just imagine for the first time reading Genesis 3.15, knowing that Jesus defeated death and Satan on the cross. Imagine reading 1 Chronicles 17, knowing that Jesus is the Davidic son who reigns forever. The fully grown flower, the fully grown treasure, the old treasure revealed in the new reality of Jesus, like a master of a house bringing out of his treasury. I don't know if you've ever been in the treasury before. The closest thing you might get to is Fort Knox, but we have keys to a better treasury than Fort Knox. And the scribes are bringing out treasures new and old. Look at here. Even here, you see Jesus. Look here. Even here, you see see Jesus. And day after day, we are free to plumb the depths of the treasury. I was reading Esther the other day, just by way of analogy. I've read Esther a billion times. I remember the, uh, the uh, old Sunday school class felt bored and everything. I remember Esther. And I, I've struggled with Esther a lot because it seems like Esther is just purely a moralistic book. Like, you don't even see the name of God in Esther. And so for years, I've kind of avoided Esther because you don't even see the name of God. And then it dawned on me just this last week. As I'm reading through Esther, I begin to see, okay, so Mordecai is sitting in ashes. He's weeping. He's poor. He's sitting at the king's gate. God, it doesn't say God, but in the story, Mordecai is elevated to sit in the prince's seat on the horse, crowned with a prince's crown, And the one who is sitting in the prince's seat, Haman, is brought down to lead him down the streets. Man, that sounds like 1 Samuel chapter 2, where Hannah sings of this great reversal where the self-exalted get brought down and the humble get exalted. And according to Hannah, that great reversal always points to God being king. So here's the point. It doesn't mention the name of God in the book of Esther because it doesn't have to. The careful reader sees this great reversal, thinks back uh, on on the, the song that deliberately says, God has raised him who sits in the ashes to sit in the prince's seat and has lowered him in the prince's seat to sit in the ashes and immediately knows that's because of God. Because God is sovereign. Esther took on a whole new light. And then you begin to read it in light of that. Great reversals happen all the time throughout the New Testament. King Herod, trying to protect his own sovereignty, humbled. Little baby Jesus, exalted to the right hand of God as a fully grown, killed, resurrected man. Little Nazarite prophet. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. King of the whole world. Just things like that. Reading scripture in such a way that you want to see the treasure You want to see old and new. You want to see it all. Master of the house, just bring it to me. I want to behold it. Man, Matthew does that. And that is one of the reasons why we're going through Matthew. He gets to Jesus eating at the Passover and instituting the Lord's Supper. And Jesus points to his own coming death as the blood of the covenant. What covenant? Well, the covenant that was spoken in Jeremiah 31. Jesus is arrested in Gethsemane, which is an amazing place to stand. And it's there that he says that God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will scatter, just as Zechariah 13 prophesied. 
Before the Sanhedrin, he stands and speaks of his own exaltation and says, just as the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and cut, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of glory. Straight out of Psalm 110 in Daniel 7. Straight out of it. And then you hear him nailed to the cross and saying the words of Psalm 22. Eli, Eli, lemestapaktani. He dies, he's buried, and he he raises again. And in his resurrection, God unearths the Old Testament treasure and shows it in its new light. My friends, my old professor was on to something. I doubt many of us are looking back on 2020 and regretting how much we've been on social media, or regretting that, wishing that we had been on social media more, right? I think there's most of us regretting we spent too much time on it. None of us are going to regret turning on, uh, wishing that we had watched more television. But to have a treasure box like this, to have screen times like mine that say that two, three hours can go in a day, just by staring at the screen. My friends, are we basking in the treasury of God's word like we should? Matthew, like a master of the house, is right there saying, hey, if you need help digging in the mine, come and I will pull out the jewels for you so that you can look. And it's by looking and by beholding in these treasures and this gold that we become gold ourselves for the kingdom. We look, we behold, and we're transformed from one degree of glory to another. And right now, what we see in part, we will see in full when Jesus comes back and we will see him face to face. So my friends, the simple message today, go treasure digging. You have the choice. You have the time. Go behold the jewels, the rubies, the sapphires, the diamonds, the silver, and the gold of God's redemptive promises. Let's pray together. Father God, I pray, Lord, that in this time, Father, you have helped us, Lord, to see how important it is to come to the treasury of your word. Father, I pray that you will help us, God, to dig out these treasures, to bask in them, to hold them up before our eyes, Father, that we will love them, cherish them, and that we will turn our own hearts into a treasure chest. Father God, let us be molded and transformed by your word. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.